The presenting sponsor of Top Docs is Netflix. Now presenting the documentary feature, Pamela, A Love Story. From award-winning director Ryan White, the LA Times says, director Ryan White's documentary lets Pamela Anderson retell her story in her own words with her own focus. Emmy nominated for Outstanding Documentary or Nonfiction Special. Welcome to Top Docs. I'm Mike Merrill. And I'm Ken Jacobson. Today, we're talking with Davis Guggenheim about his new documentary available on Apple Plus called Still, a Michael J. Fox movie. It's the story of a short kid from Canada who drops out of high school to become a movie star, and he does. Then a few years later, he wakes up with this crazy diagnosis in a Florida hotel room, and the movie's about what does he do with that? Davis Guggenheim is best known, of course, for his Academy Award-winning documentary, An Inconvenient Truth, which won the Oscar in 2007. Some of the other films he's really well-known for are It Might Get Loud, Waiting for Superman, He Named Me Malala, and Inside Bill's Brain, Decoding Bill Gates. Also, Davis has had a non-documentary career, probably most profound and which came up here. He directed four episodes of the amazing groundbreaking Deadwood. We were both, I think, particularly taken with the sort of editing and montage style in Still, and it came up in the interview. What stands out to you about the editing in the film and what Davis said about it? So one of the things that is done here, as you'll hear, is that they combine recreations of Michael J. Fox's life with contemporaneous footage, typically contemporaneous footage from TV and movies to illustrate the points that they're making. And it's a very potent mix. I think a lot of it comes from the fact that we are looking at somebody who had this incredible, meaningful on-screen presence decades ago and since. Yeah, I think it's really elaborately done and it's incredibly effective. Another thing that I thought was really impactful is Davis's interviewing style with Michael J. Fox. It's not your typical sort of dynamic with a documentary filmmaker and quote unquote subject. And we get into it in the pod. This documentary has earned seven Emmy nominations, including a lot of things you might expect from a very high quality, very well produced documentary, outstanding mixing, outstanding music composition, dramatic score. We discussed the composer, John Powell. Outstanding cinematography, which I, again, hard to argue with, include Claire Popkin, who we also discussed during the pod. Outstanding directing, absolutely. Outstanding picture editing, and we just talked about this incredible mix they have. And outstanding documentary or nonfiction special. And then finally, outstanding sound editing. And, and we talk about not just the score, but the music choices, which are quite evocative. All right. I think we'll let the listeners have at this interview that three Brown grads, class of 1986, had to discuss still a Michael J. Fox movie. And if you do enjoy this conversation, please do follow us. And you can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at TopDocsPod. Davis Guggenheim, welcome to Top Docs. Nice to be part of this. Thank you for inviting me. So we were talking just before we went on the air about our 
connection to Brown University. It turns out the three of us are Brown University class of 86 graduates. So my question here is, Brown back in the mid 80s was becoming this place somehow that became known for filmmakers. So Todd Haynes graduated around that time. Kirsten Johnson, who we've had on the podcast, also graduated around that time. A couple of years later, Rory Kennedy and Liz Garbus, and also Davis Guggenheim. Also Doug Lyman. I'm just curious if being at Brown shaped you as a filmmaker. I went to NYU as a freshman, thinking I would become a director like Woody Allen. I was very romanticized by the city, and I was totally disillusioned walking around Washington Square, feeling like this is not for me. And then when I got to Brown, I was like suddenly put into a, a pool of oddballs. And I think there was a moment when Brown was still oddball enough. It, it was an Ivy League, but it was off to the side. And it had this energy about it that was quite contagious. People were doing wild stuff. They're wild theater, wild short films, wild art. You just wanted to be part of it. So it, it was sort of in the water as opposed to being taught. I, I think Brown didn't necessarily teach all those filmmakers in one place. Semiotics was there, but it was, that's a weird department. But I think there was something about that generation and that group of people that was special. And I'm sure some later Brown graduate student has written a thesis about it. What was in the water in Providence, Rhode Island that was put in there in 1983? I got to think the semiotics department had something to do with it. I really do. Certainly for Todd Haynes, it clearly shows in his work, I think. For those of you, people listening to your podcast, I was intrigued by semiotics. I went to Brown to study it and it went totally over my head. It was <laughs> just like very, very academic dissection of film and images with all the great theorists and it wasn't for me, but there were, amaz there were people who were just taken by it. Maybe I wasn't smart enough. It's funny. We ended up talking with Kirsten Johnson about Lacan on this podcast, but we won't do that today. Let me ask you, in the film, you relied greatly on Michael J. Fox's and uh, on his writings from his several memoirs, most notably, I think, Lucky Man. And you actually have him doing the voiceover, reading from these. He's written a lot of the narration and he reads the narration. And many may not know, but in the decade after he left full-time on-screen acting, he basically became a successful writer and a successful voice actor. He recreated himself. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't call it narration, although people might think it is. Most of it is his voice from his books on tape, which is mm. less narration, which to me implies like a third-person kind of journalist of some kind. This is like a storyteller. It's like a guy telling you almost like a fable, and it has that tone of it. What surprised me when I picked up his books is what a good writer he is and what a good yeah. storyteller he is. I was intrigued by his approach on life, but really it's like, wow, he can, like the movie opens in a hotel room when his pinky starts twitching. And if you pick up the book, you would say, wow, this makes Davis's job so much easier because it's just a really well-told story. And we use his writing all across the movie. I've read some of it now and, you know, it's snappy. Early on, it's snappy. It's funny. There's these kind of pop cultural illusions deployed for dark comic effect before Tarantino made it cool. I think it gets more lyrical, his later works. I think a little more lyrical. For me, what I found really powerful, though, about it was in those early books, you're both there in the moment and yet you also have a sense of that person who's out in the future. And he somehow doesn't seem detached. He seems very much in the moment. And yet that's not an easy trick to pull off. And I wondered if that influenced the way you 
did your own film. hundred percent. And the thing that pulled me in, I was in the middle of COVID, a little bit blue, a little bit dark. And I read this interview with him in the New York Times. I wasn't looking for a movie. And he talked about this terrible fall he had. He was actually getting ready to do a Spike Lee movie. He was a day player in a Spike Lee movie. And the family was out of town. And his daughter said, hey, you want me to stay with you and help you get ready? And he was, he had just recovered from this operation. He's like, no, I, I'm, I'm good. I'm, I'm feeling really strong. He's getting ready for work in the morning. He has a cup of coffee to see him. He falls and he shatters his arm. And it's so bad that he can't reach the phone to call 911. And it's brutal. The way he told that story in this one, first thing I read, which was, what was I thinking? He talks about his hubris. Like, why couldn't he ask for help? And also like the pain and like being stuck and disappointing Spike Lee, shutting down production. It was very dramatic, but inside that telling was first of all, like bits of humor and also no kind of, I think what sometimes you see in celebrity writing is like, my problems are the biggest problem in the world. You know, my, right. my problems are like, poor me. And I think that comes across in the movie. There's no pity. There's no like, it's very matter of fact but also very poignant, but also very funny. So that tone that you talk about was the first thing that sort of pulled me in and said, wait a minute, I have to rethink of him. Rethink Michael J. Fox as a storyteller. I think that's one of the things too, as we come into the film, I'm not sure exactly where I am at first. I don't know how to respond to what I'm seeing, right? I see someone from my youth who's changed dramatically. And you show us a scene early on of him walking through the streets. I think it's at the Upper West Side. That's right, yeah. And he's walking with the help of an aide, and it's great because it's a heightened sense of this, like, how do I read what I'm seeing? Someone recognizes him, he greets him, and he turns to answer her and, and he falls. And I caught my breath. I know for me, it was like, whoa, how do I read this? Then he makes a joke, I think probably a practice joke, but one nonetheless that was very well delivered, which is, you knocked me off my feed. And to my reading, it's like, Parkinson's is no joke, but in how Michael responds, I think we have a model for how you might treat his deprivation with some sense of humor. I'm really glad you brought that up because that sequence was the breakthrough for the movie. I think in every movie, you struggle to find the tone of the movie. And this goes back to my TV days and working with David Milch, who all he talked about was tone, the tone of scenes. I think about him all the time and, and the tone of NYPD Blue, the tone of Deadwood, the tone of the work I do. And we didn't quite figure that out because here you got a guy with Parkinson's and I think people, when they, even now, when people say, oh, I haven't seen your movie yet, but I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm not ready to cry, you know? The expectation is you're going to see this film that's like sad, sick movie, right? I put sick in quotations. The moment before he has that fall, there's this moment, and this is not intended, it was just like an interview moment, but I asked him, I said, is this the sad sack story of a movie star that gets this debilitating disease and it crushes him? And he stops and he like turns and looks in the lens and he says, that's boring. And it's at this moment where you're not sure exactly where this movie's going. You see him brushing his teeth and his hand is shaking. Like he can barely put. And for, for a couple of seconds, we're like, okay, this is a movie you think you're going to see. Oh my, we're going to watch this guy suffer. But he says, no, don't look at it that way. I don't want to be seen as this, this sickness or be put in a box of someone who is sick or has a diagnosis. I want to be seen as this guy. And then you see him walk to work and you see him fall and you see him handle it with that kind of, at Sundance, that there's a huge laughter. And forget the joy of having a piece of laughter in your movie, especially if it's a documentary. It was that moment of like, okay, 
they understand the tone of where this movie's going. I think another clue for the audience about tone is your interview style. You are sometimes challenging, but I think in a playful way throughout. I, I don't know that I've ever heard a documentary interviewer ask a question, so were you a dick? Which is also disarming, but also sets the tone. Can you talk about just how you found your feet as an interviewer in figuring out just what kind of tone you wanted to bring to the interviews? I never think about putting my questions in my movies. Actually, when I hear my voice, it get it, maybe all of us feel that way. He's like, I hate that it sounds gravelly. And anyway, the first time we did that, Jay Cassidy, who cut Waiting for Superman, put it in Waiting for Superman. But my questions, and I, and I never thought about it. He has since edited a lot of David O. Russell movies, Silver Linings Playbook and Amsterdam and American Hustle. He's a great editor. He had cut Inconvenient Truth and Waiting for Superman with me. And we both learned in that moment that it's super helpful to have the question because it frames, it helps with tone because it says, okay, audience, look in this direction. It strips the documentary away from these formal aspects of like a talking head interview with this person's disembodied from the rest of the story. You're hearing this engagement. And the question is like letting the audience into the room where that discussion is happening. And so I've become a little bit more free in that regard. I try to cut it out a lot and the editors tend to put it back in. And Michael Hart, the editor, put a lot of it in because I guess I would say it lets the audience in the room. And to Michael J. Fox's credit, he was so game. He was so playful. There's a special camera we used to get that interview, which I think also helped. For your film geeks, it might be yeah. side-based. Sure. Let's geek out here. What camera did you use? So... My plan when I pitched this to Apple was no interviews, none. And for a while, for three or four months, we weren't going to interview Michael. And I'm on this commercial shoot and this other cinematographer, Claire Popkin, showed me the shot. And a lot of documentarians use this thing called the Interatron, which Errol Morris fashioned. It's a two-way mirror or one-way mirror where it ma makes it so the interviewee looks like they're looking right in the lens. But what they're looking at is an image of the interviewer done through a mirror. And I hated that as an interviewee because I want to connect and look at the person in the eye. I've been interviewed by Errol and he's like in another room and you can hear him screaming through the walls. Hey, and it works really well for him because I think he has a different tone, right? Brilliant. Errol's, there's no one better. But when I did this commercial, Claire showed me this one it's really a lens more than a camera. It's a lens, it's a certain lens at a certain height, at a certain distance, where you can actually look into each other's eyes, but it looks like Michael J. Fox is looking into the lens. And to do it, me and him are like four feet apart, which is really close. Like in most interview, because of long lenses and lights, you're like 10 feet apart. And you're often in a big room and there's crew sitting on the floor, produces on their cell phones, and it's very not intimate. You're trying to make it seem intimate. And in this case, this one shot, which was the only shot, only interview in the whole movie is me and Michael looking into each other's eyes four feet apart. And I think that also had a tremendous effect on the sense of like intimacy. I read that you interviewed him, I think, seven times over the course of the year. How did your relationship evolve over that year and over the course of those interviews? Yeah, so it's not confusing to people listening. It's the same shot, 
but we would shoot for two days of that shot, go back and edit and then shoot some more. Cause we say, okay, well we got these things, but we didn't get those things. And one of the things that I like to do at the beginning, especially maybe the first three days is to have no agenda whatsoever. I'm not trying to get through the, the Wikipedia page of, of his story. I just want to wander with him and make each other laugh or make each other cry or whatever. To answer your question, the relationship deepened. It just got deepened. But I would say also that it started in a very open place. What you're getting when you're a documentarian is like, when you start every movie, it's like, how open is this person? And if I was being put in a documentary, I'd be on guard. I'd be thinking, what do these people want? I want to tell this part of my story. I don't want to tell that part of my story. And so you get that a lot with people, as, you, as it makes sense. But he's like, I'm an open book. Ask me anything. And I think you feel that right away in the first day. But then as we got cooking, like it just got better and better and better. And that's a testimony to him as a person who just says, look, I got nothing to hide here. I wanna, I'm open to this. And that, that was the gift that he gave the movie. One of the things you do as you're illustrating his life is you mix in uh, recreations with footage from contemporaneous, usually contemporaneous films or TV of the moment to demonstrate like, He's a poor actor in Hollywood, so let's have some shots from his film and footage which suggests that. It's very powerful. And I was really trying to think of what the kind of analog for this was. And the one that jumped to mind, interesting enough, was Christian Markley's The Clock, in which Back to the Future plays a repeated and prominent role, as you might imagine, with all its clocks and watches and so forth. I just wondered, what made you come to that idea that you would use the footage that way? I love that reference. I have to go back and look now. The clock is great. It's hard to see, but yeah. When we started the movie... Here's the thing with documentaries is often what happens is people go off and shoot. They spend most of their money and then they come back and say, what story are we telling? And, you know, right. features, they have a script and so they know where they're going. But documentaries don't know where they're going. And the more I do it, the more I realize, the more you can give yourself some clues before you start. So we had a, a, a what we called a story summit where Michael Hart, the editor, who's genius and very much part of my answer to your question he was a big part of it. Will Cohen, producer, writer, Annette Marion was there. We screened a collection of all the archive of Michael J. Fox. We watched Back to the Future. We watched Secret of My Success. We watched Predators of War. And we watched a bunch of documentaries. We watched Man on Wire, which is a, a reference point for me. Mm. The best film with recreations and the best, not only recreations, but the best narrative structure that I know. And we watched some more. I can't remember. But that's the idea is we did that. the honest answer is I didn't know we were going to use the footage the way we use them. Uh, and Michael Hart was a genius behind that. And the gift was, is that he is obsessive Michael J. Fox fan and had seen everything. When we started editing and he was in London, I was here. We had his books on tape and Michael cut those books on tape down to scenes. So a good example is a scene where he's, we called it moonlighting, where he's doing family ties in the morning and back to the future not he's doing two jobs and rushed working all never sleeping and it's just wild sequence and my solution like in documentaries you're like we have no footage for that what do we do so my solution were recreations so i would storyboard that because you don't want to shoot all that until you storyboard it i would storyboard that put it in the film and then i'd go to bed and i'd come back in the morning and michael hart would have pulled that out and put scenes from his movies in places so the genius moment was he would put in that scene from Secret of My Success, where Michael J. Fox is walking into the office 
And he, Michael cuts it in this genius way where he's talking to this person off camera. And it, it sounds like Gary David Goldberg. And Gary David Goldberg is giving him the script for Back to the Future. And it's mind-blowing that he said, Stephen gave me the script. It's mind-blowing that he tells Michael J. Fox that he'd already been sent that script, but Gary didn't tell him. Like how he, he gets offered Back to the Future and Gary David Goldberg doesn't even tell him. Anyway, what Michael Hart, editor, did was to use that scene in a way that I could never imagine. In fact, that whole sequence is really powerful because he's traversing between the set of Family Ties and Back to the Future, and the shots, the pacing, even the music to me seems something of a homage to the Spielberg and even Zemeckis film of schoolmaking. And so the process just got more frantic. Sometimes he would put in footage from Michael's films and I would take it out, and we shot recreation. So we shot his apartment, we shot him being driven by Teamsters. So there's a lot of recreations in there. And it became a battle, which way do you go? In the end, as we started to get kind of a, a language going, and we intercut both. So that sequence is the ultimate expression of what we did, which is everything. So you have, you have shots from his other movies where Michael is essentially playing himself, but in another movie, we had shots of their recreations, we had shots from Family Ties, shots from Back to the Future. And of course, we use the score from Back to the Future, Alan Silvestri score. Yeah, which great. Is, and there were moments where like, maybe this is too far. And we cut things that we had to take out because we went too far. I think one of the other things that happens here, what's really interesting is when there's a collapse here between the fictional and real worlds. And one of those collapses is you alert us the fact that Michael's suffering early stages of Parkinson's and is in his left pinky and then his whole left hand and his left arm. You, you show us a bunch of scenes and we can't help but be looking at that hand and see if it's worrying something or if he has it clenched tight. Is his gait a little bit off? Are his facial expressions undergoing some diminution? The reality of the Parkinson starts peeking through the fictional world. I never noticed that, but you called it to our attention. Yeah, it was hiding in plain sight. So it's most apparent during Spin City towards the end, before he tells the world. But it's also in movies like Life with Mikey and a couple other of his other movies. All of this starts with Michael's writing. So he writes about learning how to, because Parkinson's happens when you're at rest, so if your hand is at rest, it starts to shake. So if you move your hand, interestingly enough, then, so he writes about that in a very eloquent way. We strip that all down into what you call narration, but I would call like VO and maybe only five or six lines. And then we cut the material underneath it. We had an incredible group, Helen Young, who was an assistant editor and Jackie Cleary, who was our archivist, but then Michael Hart just scoured hundreds of episodes of Spin City say, where do you see his left hand shaking? Where do you see him holding something? That was thousands of hours of work for like a two minute sequence. I have a question about that, which is, it's amazing to me that nobody on the show seems to have known, number one. Number two, that Gary David Goldberg is not somebody he felt he could tell. Yeah. I have to go back to the book. He does tell Goldberg at some point. My sense is, and I don't want to speak for Michael J. Fox, but I think I'm right in that my sense is that it's in the movie for a bit because I didn't feel responsible to anyone. I was like protecting my career. But if it got out, you know, my livelihood is at stake. He was doing movie after movie after movie and spin city. And so I think Gary David Goldberg knew before other people did. But I honestly felt, and also like those of us who live in denial, I want to pretend I'm not getting old. I want to pretend that my body isn't changing. It's a sign of, it's kind of like a, a pathetic act of pride 
to not tell anybody. Yeah, I can handle this. And I think for a long time, he felt like he could handle it. I think there's a subtext in the movie, though, of society and its response to people with illnesses or disabilities. And clearly, this time period, the early 90s, doesn't seem like a period when society was particularly receptive to receiving that information or knowing how to deal with it. And so I think, you know, one of the things that's interesting about the film is from where we sit today, how do we perceive the reaction of those, whether they were talk show hosts or just people he may have worked with on those shows and how Parkinson's was treated then? I think you're right. And I also think we expect our movie stars to be infallible and perfect and strong and healthy. And no one could have imagined a 29-year-old man getting Parkinson's. He says it. It's an old person's disease. In his mind, it was an old person's disease. You know, it made, made no sense. Another place where sort of the fictional world and the real world collapses in your film, there's a number of these vertiginous moments, is when we see him literally falling in love with Tracy yeah. on set, right? Whenever we screen the film, people are like, God, she's amazing. I always watch, watch my films and feel like, when do we have people on the hook? And the minute that he falls in love with Tracy, it, to me, is the moment we have. Well, no, it's pretty late in the movie. It's like more than 30 minutes in. Because everything else up to that is just like a story of a kid from Canada and all these amazing things happen to him. For those who haven't seen the movie, like he makes fun of her on the set of Family Ties, makes fun of her breath. It's kind of a mean joke, but like in that world, everyone laughs at that person number one of a call sheet and, and and he got away with a lot of mean humor and she calls him on it she says you're a complete fucking asshole and his it's so good in her movie it's from the book he just says in that moment i fell in love with her and then you cut to this scene where they're in the movie um bright lights big city a movie that sort of came and went in, in my mind but you watch it now and it's lit by gordon willis like a cinematographer of the godfather and it's so beautifully lit you know, it's a New York scene and they're in silhouette and the storefronts are behind them and that sort of lights them in silhouette. It's kind of, and as characters that are on a date and Michael Hart finds this and he says, why don't we use it for this moment? And when it happened, we're like, I got goosebumps. It's so good. She says, I guess I'm supposed to be really impressed by your job, which is from Bright Lights, Big City. And of course, it also works for him. He's like the most famous movie star in the world. You know, He's in Back to the Future. Team Wolf and Family Ties all at once. And then they sit and they awkwardly decide, you know, whether we're going to have another date and they kiss. And in that moment, it's like they're in love and it's perfect. And it really, you really feel that as a person, he's without ballast. He's tossed in the swirl of Hollywood and she pulls him, anchors him and gives him ballast. I would have mentioned too, just the fun that you have around these recreations that you do for the 80s. Just the clothes alone, like these kind of James Spader, like flecked sports jackets, like it, the costuming it, alone has been a delight. It was really fun. It was really fun. And, and you know, you go, God, I lived through that time. Why did I dress like that? Stonewashed jeans. Ah. And then like, and then these like bright powder blue and neon orange. And you're like, what are, what were we thinking? <laughs> One of the key themes I think is that Michael has to learn to stop hiding his condition and really lying about it. And he does so. He really embraces this. He even becomes an activist for Parkinson's and other neurological disorders. And we see him seated next to the late Muhammad Ali at a congressional hearing. But 
later in the film, I think it's interesting. You do call him out for the fact that he, in some ways, isn't still fully being transparent. You note like, hey, you must be in pain. You're feeling pain right now. And he admits it. Yeah, I mean, my favorite part of the movie is that part where he's hiding because it means that he's human. You would imagine, I'm watching this film, Michael J. Fox Foundation hero, and you're like, oh, he's a hero and it was easy. And to me, what's compelling is that he gets this diagnosis and he does absolutely the wrong thing. He drinks too much, he hides from his family, and he hides from the world, and he fucks up. And to me, that's interesting. He fucks up and then how he finds his way to where he is now. That's, to me, the most heroic thing. It's truly like real, authentic things that I consider a, a hero. I think there's still part of his makeup. His books are like all about optimism. One of his books is called Lucky Man, right? And, and they're all about like projecting optimism, you know, teaching gratitude, which I kind of like avoid in the movie because it feels a little, maybe not good for a movie. You know? But he is generally, I talked to him yesterday, just so upbeat and optimistic and bragging about his kids and excited about, you know, the latest technical breakthroughs. But I do think he still, that part of him avoids talking about his suffering. And we saw it when we had a, a tight cut of the movie and it was working pretty well. I was like, there's something missing here. And I said, we have to shoot one more day. And we flew back to New York and did that interview one more time. And I confronted him and I was like, you know, I've talked to you for hours and hours and hours and you never talk about your pain. And he goes, it never came up. <laughs> And to me, if you're talking to me about my pain, I'll tell you all day long. Like I can, you know, <laughs> but I do think there's something about him which doesn't want to do it. You know, doesn't want to go there. And that's interesting. You know, it says a lot about him. And I would also just add to your credit, there's then a scene with his aide where they're working out and it's a scene that demonstrates the incredible pain that he is under. So it's both in that interview and then we see it, see it playing out in his life. Yeah, that one day... We went back. We were like, well, the film was finished. And we said, look, we have to go back. I asked for that interview and I asked for one more PT, physical therapy session with Ryan. who's amazing. His condition changed in the course of making the movie. He had, he broke both his wrists, his arm, bones in his face, each a different fall, each a different trip to the ER and hospital stay. He would avoid talking about it. He doesn't want to ever think poor me, you know. The movie is also a movement towards stillness, as the title implies. I wanted to ask about the use of songs in the movie, because I felt like in the beginning, the songs are quite prominent. But then I noticed toward the end of the film, it felt like the music itself was becoming more still. And I was thinking about music as sound waves or vibration, and how it's almost like the music is becoming still too. I don't know if that was just me, but I would also just call out your music supervisor, Randall Poster, who's also Brown University, <laughs> class of 84, I believe, but he does great work and has done music supervising for many movies. He seems to always know what music to recommend. He does music for Wes Anderson and Marty Scorsese, so he slummed it with me for a minute. That's a great observation about the stillness of the music. I would also call out John Powell. He's our composer who is known for How to Train Your Dragon and Born Identity and had never done a documentary. So it was a big leap to say, should this... Composers are known for these bigger, full-throated 
you know, go for it type scores to do something a little quieter. And I'm so happy with what he brought. It's funny that the title still came at the very, very end. I was struggling for the title. I was trying to put title a different version. I love the word still, but I couldn't figure out how to do it. And that sort of idea came as we were cutting the last scene of the movie. So I'm going to have to ask the corny question. I have to do it. In some ways, this is a movie about a unicorn, about, like you said, a little guy who in his 20s becomes the biggest star on TV and is rising in Hollywood and still within his 20s finds out he has Parkinson's, something that is really unusual. So in some ways, it just seems like unique story. But I do wonder, do you think there are lessons here for all of us? I think so. I mean, I, I mentioned that like when I read his book, I was not looking for a movie. I was just looking for a little hope and not thinking it was going to come from Michael J. Fox, to be honest with you. But as I read it and I read his books, I was like, wow, there's something in here. I hope so. I really do. I, I don't have Parkinson's, but I'm getting older. I feel more fragile. I feel a little bit more uncertain throughout the world. I feel a little dark. And the making of this movie brought me joy. It really did. It, it, there's a levity that I see in my own work. There's a levity that was part of the editing room and production that was that I want I'm looking for another movie right now and I want to recapture that. I don't want to I don't want to regress to a sort of more overly serious, pretentious place. I love the joy that I found in my own work and I hope that transmits. I would recommend everyone see this documentary also or Michael J. Fox's books. Lucky Man is great. Like we said, it's this kind of punchy fun. The most recent one, No Time Like the Future, is very lyrical, also very beautifully done. And if you want a different book, uh, since you brought up David Milch, his book, Life's Work, is really an account in real time of another neurological disorder and is beautifully done. And it's just a great, I think, counterpoint to Michael J. Fox's book. So I'm going to recommend a lot of books to read today, folks. That is an incredible book. Milch's? It brought tears to my eyes. And for those who just want a taste of it, he doesn't read the book, but he reads the intro. And just hearing his voice read that intro is so profound. It's the best book about writing that I um, that I know. Well, Davis, thank you so much for being here. I think after maybe 130 of these podcasts, maybe I'm deluding myself, but I felt like I got the sense of the filmmaker in the film itself. I really felt like you were totally along for this ride and that Probably the making of this film did have an impact on you, and it seems like it did in some way. That's what you wish for when you make a film, is that the making of the film changes you. Thank you for recognizing that. And this is so much fun. I really appreciate you inviting me on. Thank you so much, Davis. Congratulations on the film. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Ken. Do you have a hidden gem, a documentary you've seen in the past that you think maybe doesn't get the attention it deserves? It got some attention last year, but I watched it again with my family. This movie, Haul Out, it's a short film. And we had the director of Haul Out, of the Oscar-nominated Haul Out, Evgenia Abrugeva, on the show. Amazing film. It's interesting when you show your kids whether, like, you, you get this, is it just something great for documentaries? because they don't look at films through that lens. They just want to be entertained. And it's riveting. It's so well made. It could have been made in 1965, but it's just as contemporary now. It's beautiful. 